Welcome back to The Compass, the sermon-based podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as Pastor Kirk continues our series in the book of Philippians. Now, if you're looking for a church in Northwest Arkansas, we would love to have you join us as we worship and study together. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and you can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com. If you have questions, reach out. You can reach us through the website, or you can call us at 479-442-4634. Again, Pastor Kirk is continuing our study of the book of Philippians, and he's sharing a message from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, entitled, The Hymn of Christ, Part 2. Let's listen together. The book of Philippians chapter 2, page number 980 if you would care to read out of one of the pew Bibles in the book rack in front of you. Well, last week we began a message entitled, The Hymn of Christ. It's from this extraordinary passage in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We're going to continue our thoughts today uh, with part 2 of that message because this particular um, passage falls very naturally into two parts that, that go together. And all of it is a continuation of Paul's appeal uh, to these Philippian believers uh, that they be Christians who strive to advance the gospel of Christ, that they should stand firm in unity together, and that in doing so, in being the church, in, in uh, standing firm for the gospel and unity and seeking to advance that gospel, they're going to suffer in this world, but that's okay uh, because Christ has left an example for us. Now, the way that they are to stand in unity and to strive for the gospel is that they have to live lives different from what it is like to live life in the world. And he starts off chapter 2 with talking about living supernatural lives. He doesn't use that word there. But when he talks about uh, living in humility, putting one another first, uh, never being uh, motivated by arrogance or conceit, understand he is talking about a lifestyle that is exactly the opposite of our world around us. He's talking about a supernatural way of life, and he's saying that's okay because Christ is in you, what he has done already for you, the gifts he has given you, the word that he's given you, all these things make it possible through God's grace. And then in chapter 5, or excuse me, in chapter 2, verse 5, he gives a commandment to them, an imperative. These are marching orders. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so that's the command, and then he gives the example of Jesus. Now, we call this the hymn of Christ because virtually almost all scholars... Theologians agree that these verses, verses 5 through 11, composed an early hymn of the church. 
Maybe these words were even written and recorded uh, during the lifetime of the Apostle Paul. But if not during Paul's life, then certainly in the early days of the church following that. So let's take up our reading with verse 5. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Now remember, when Christ left the bliss of heaven for the miseries of earth, it wasn't just to save us from our sins. It wasn't just to save us from the punishment of our sins or to give us an example to follow. Certainly he did that. But he left heaven and came to earth also to reconfigure the very inclinations of our hearts, to change us so completely, not just to give us the assurance of heaven when we die, but to change the way we think and live while we are still here so that his mindset, his attitude would also be ours. That's why he gives this command. Have this mind, have this attitude among yourselves. It was also the mindset and the attitude of Jesus. Follow in his steps. Now last Sunday, we focused on the first half of this passage. We focused our attention on the incredible truth of the humiliation of Christ. Now let's take just a few minutes and review that just a little bit before we go to part two. The humiliation of Christ is the fact that Jesus willingly uh, stooped low. He willingly lay aside his privilege and his position and his recognition and the respect of heaven to come to this earth and to live a servant's life and to die for our sins. I love the way Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the New Testament called the message, how it words John chapter 1 verse 14. Listen to these words. The word, now that's Jesus, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true 
from start to finish. So Jesus left heaven and moved into our neighborhood to live and experience firsthand with us and for us what we face in this life. And yet to do so in sinless perfection, providing a way for you and me. Never in history has there been a story quite like that. The Creator God humbling Himself, becoming a part of His creation. And as I mentioned to you last week, this passage, if you want to do so, you may write these in the column of your Bible, can be divided up in three words for God and His work on our behalf. First of all, verse 5 and 6, we see the Creator, the Creator. He was God. He was equal with God the Father. But the Creator became the creature. He took on human form. He came into time and space and became a part of his own creation that he brought into existence. And as a result of that humiliation and stooping so low and even dying for our sins, the Father has raised him up and we see Christ high and lifted up, sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Creator, creature, Christ, Jesus, the God-man, 100% man. 100% God, not 50-50, not 80-20, not 95-5. You just do the math any way you want to do it. 100% God, 100% man. I know that mathematically in your human mind that doesn't work. But understand, that's why it is godly, theological, biblical truth. You and I have to accept that by faith. Now we see how Jesus humbled himself. We see his attitude of humility. Verse 6 tells us that though he was equal with God the Father, he did not consider that equality as something he had to dig his nails into, to grasp, to hold on to, and to keep. He was willing to be open-handed about all of the privilege of who he was. He did not need the angels of heaven constantly affirming him. He knew who he was. He had an attitude of submission to the Father. And we see him emptying himself. Now that sometimes leaves the wrong impression. We have the idea that when he emptied himself, he became less than God. But remember, he's still 100% God while on this earth. He did not become less God. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He emptied himself by taking his godliness, the God who he was, and robing that in human flesh, 100% man. And that human flesh disguised who he was. You couldn't pick him out in a crowd. 
Isaiah 53 said there was no form or attractiveness about him that we should naturally gravitate towards him, that we would desire to be with him. He was not some kind of slick politician or man of power. He was lowly. He was a man who suffered and acquainted with grief. He took upon himself not the form of a king. He already was a king. He took upon himself the form of a servant. Now, during this life, he was God incognito. God incognito. And we see glimpses where he drew aside his human flesh to expose the God that could not normally be seen. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus transfigured before him, and they saw his glory. Moses on the mountain saw the glory, the Shekinah glory that followed behind him, saw the glory of God with his own eyes. When Jesus walked on water, when Jesus healed the sick, when Jesus raised the dead, he was revealing the God who lived in this human suit of servanthood. But he embraced that servanthood with no natural rights, no natural privileges, and he became obedient to death. That means he submitted himself even to die in the flesh and not to die a hero's death, but to die in the most painful in the most humiliating, in the most awful way a person could die, the extent of his death was even death on a cross. Okay, that was last week. The humiliation of Christ. So now let's see point number two in this message. The exaltation of Christ. This is verses 9 through 11. These two parts of this hymn is joined by the word therefore. It's how verse 9 begins. Therefore signifies that what has been said has been said in order for you to understand what I'm about to say. These are the results of what I just said. As one of my Bible professors years ago used to say, Anytime you encounter the word therefore in Scripture, ask the question, what is it there for? And this is exactly why he tells us of the humiliation of Christ that he's going to tell us now about the exaltation of Christ. Verses 9 through 11 describe God the Father's sovereign response to the selfless humiliation of his only begotten son. Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him, bestowed on him, the name that is above every name. Now, if you end the story, listen to me, if you end the story with the humiliation of Christ and the death of Christ at the crucifixion, you don't have the whole story. That in itself is not even half of the gospel. That in itself is no gospel. 
For if all we have is a dead sacrifice, then Jesus could be numbered among so many others through history who died for other people. He would be no different than the soldier in the foxhole that dives on the grenade to save his brothers. A selfless and noble act. But if, if the Father had not highly exalted him by raising him from the dead and doing some other things we'll mention in just a minute, if the Father had not highly exalted him, if we leave Christ a crucified Savior, or as our Catholic friends do, a crucifix, not with an empty cross, but with the figure of Jesus perpetually hanging on the cross, we don't have the full gospel. You see, it is God who highly exalted Jesus. It is God who lifted him above everything to the highest place in a position of supreme authority. Let me say two things to you about the exaltation of Christ. Number one, there is the present reality of Christ's exaltation. There is the truth of what has already happened about the exaltation of Christ. Verse 9 speaks of the exaltation of Christ in past tense. It has already happened. It stands firm in the heavens today. It is still true today. Verse 9 tells us that it is God the Father that is the source of the exaltation of Christ. God has highly exalted him. Not the angels of heaven. Not saints here on earth. Not Jesus himself. But it is the Father who has highly, the word there is only used here in the entire New Testament. Highly exalted literally means super exalted. The Father has super exalted his son. Never has there been an exaltation like this. Never will there ever be again. The father has exalted, super exalted his son Jesus. Now we often say that when we come to worship, that when we come to a place like this, that we are here. Some of our songs even say it. We are here to exalt the name of of the Lord. But understand, technically, that's not true. You can't exalt Jesus above where he already is. Now, you can exalt him in your heart. You can exalt him in your personal relationship with him. But you cannot exalt Jesus above the position where he already is. But in our worship, we acknowledge him. We affirm him. We adore him for his exalted position. But it is God who exalted his son. And he did it once for all. And Jesus still stands today, 2,000 years later, as the exalted Christ of heaven. Okay, so this is the present reality. There's not something in the future that Jesus is waiting on that is different or better or beyond 
where he already is. He ascended back to the Father, and the Father exalted him. Now, understand that long before there was a created world, long before Adam and Eve, long before the universe was spoken into existence, long before anything existed besides God. Now, follow me here. This was a covenant made between Father and Son and Spirit. That the Trinity made this covenant. And the Son, even before He created the world, the Son of God was uh, agreed to humble Himself by becoming a part of His creation that He had not yet created. This is why the Bible says that Jesus stood as a lamb slain even from the foundation of the world. In eternity past, he took upon himself that position, that humiliation of being uh, a sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. And the Father, in response to that, agreed to super exalt him uh, as a result of that and to give him a name that is above all names. So all of this was agreed upon even when the world was being created in eternity past, it was decided. And all of this was planned and decided by a sovereign God, a sovereign Godhead, whose only goal and objective for all creation is to bring glory and honor to him, to him. Now, follow me through four quick steps. Because this exaltation of Christ, this exalting Christ, is rooted in four real, concrete, historic events. Two of them that we could see. Two of them that were testified and witnessed by his followers. Two of them took place in heaven that we read about in Scripture. Four steps to the exaltation of Christ. First of all, there was the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He was exalted over death and the grave And it was the Father who resurrected his son Jesus from the dead. And this physical resurrection of Jesus who was deader than a hammer. This Jesus who his humanity was totally killed. Whose heart had quit beating. The blood had stopped flowing. The mind had ceased functioning. This human body that died, this resurrection of that body to life again, still bearing the scars of the crucifixion on his hands and his feet, his side and his back. This resurrection is the very bedrock and foundation of the Christian faith. That's why we do not look to a Christ still hanging on a cross. We look to a Christ who reigns in heaven. He was raised from the dead. And this raising of Jesus from the dead was God the Father's validation 
on the person and work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. The Father's stamp of approval was placed on that, and three days later, he raised him from the dead as living proof. That's why Peter said on the day of Pentecost, as he preached that great message in Acts chapter 2, remember, this Peter that just a few days before had been, had been denying Christ and cursing now is the one selected by God to stand up and preach on this first sermon of a resurrected Savior. And this is what he said. Listen very closely. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we, we apostles, are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What was it that Jesus was pouring out that they were seeing and hearing? It was the pouring out of the fullness of God the Holy Spirit into the world. And Jesus was raised from the dead by the Father. So we have the resurrection. That's where the exaltation of Jesus begins. But 40 days after that, we read about the ascension. The ascension. Ten days before Pentecost, you remember? In Acts chapter 1, the Bible says this that God exalted his son Christ through the ascension, verses 9 through 11 of Acts 1. And when he had said these things, basically he gave a rewording of the great commission to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They didn't see him the day he left heaven and became an embryo in Mary's womb. Nobody could visualize or see that. But these men saw him go back to heaven as that cloud ascended and became smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And at some point, passed out of this atmosphere into the very rarefied air of heaven and of eternity. This dramatic departure of the risen Christ marks again, and even maybe in a, a greater way, the end of the humiliation of Christ. His journey on this earth is now over and now he enters into his exaltation once again knowing the respect and the glory and the privilege and the power and the equality with God the Father. He was not only exalted from the grave, he was exalted over earth itself. The exaltation of Christ, the present reality of that exaltation. Jesus is a resurrected Savior. 
Jesus ascended back to heaven. And then for two events that we could not see but we read about, there was number three, a coronation in heaven. A coronation. When Jesus gets back to heaven, these angels that no doubt out of bewilderment, no doubt out of not understanding fully the covenant that the Father and Son had made in eternity past. These created angels that fell silent the day Jesus left heaven to come to earth to begin his humiliation and his sojourning here as a servant and as a sacrifice. Now they look up and Psalm 24, I believe, describes that as they cry out and call out from the very ramparts of heaven as they see this one approaching heaven and they say, who is this king of glory that we see coming? It is the Lord high and lifted up. And he comes back into heaven to the praise and the glory of the angels, to the well done of his father. And his father crowns him and gives him his rightful place once again, a place at the father's right hand, the seat of power and authority. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 20 and 21 describes it like this. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. He is given that seat of glory of authority, of power. That's why Jesus spoke those words before he left earth. When he spoke the Great Commission, he said to his disciples, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. That took place when the coronation in heaven took place. Now understand, as you've heard me say before, a very practical application of that truth of where Jesus is with all authority. If all authority has been given to Jesus, there's no authority for you and me left over. If you want authority and if you want autonomy in this life, you don't want to be a Christian because you can't be. You cannot be a follower of Christ until you surrender your self-proclaimed authority over your own life and over the autonomy to live any way you want to live. That, my friend, is a part of the price of salvation. I know Jesus paid it all, but understand he also is the one that you owe all allegiance to. In the resurrection, Christ was exalted over sin, death, and the grave. That's why Paul said, O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your victory? Jesus robbed sin and death and the grave 
of its victory and of its power. In the ascension, Christ was exalted over time and space. He is once again the eternal Father in heaven, the ancient of days, the same yesterday, today, and forever. No longer incognito. No longer is his godliness covered up or hidden by the form of a servant. He is the king of glory. But in the coronation, Christ was exalted over every name that is to ever be named. And it says in verse 8 that God the Father has given him, <clears throat> excuse me, a name that is above every name. So I ask you, <clears throat> what exactly is the name that is above every name? It's not Jesus. Now we hold that name to be, be very personal and we love the name of Jesus. But that's not the name that is above every name. Jesus is just the New Testament counterpart to Joshua in the Old. And how many Joshuas has this world known? For that matter, how many Jesuses has this world known? Not just one. Go south of the border. You'll meet a lot of people named Jesus. It's just another form of Joshua. What is the name above every name? It's not Messiah because that was his position. That was the promised one of the Old Testament. The one that the prophets said was coming someday. The Savior, the, the Messiah, the promised one of the Jews. It's not Christ. It's not Christ. That's just another word for Messiah. When I say just another, I don't mean to belittle any of those names. But those are not the names. This name above every name is a name that describes his glorious position of sovereign lordship. Jesus Christ is what? Lord. The name above every name. The name given to him by the Father. The name bestowed upon him is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord. That little chorus we sang earlier came out of the Jesus people movement of the 60s. Some of us are old enough to remember. All right, resurrection, stage one of the exaltation of Christ. Ascension, stage two. Stage three, coronation in heaven. And stage four has to do with the position and the place that he fulfills even today as Lord. And that is, the word we put here would be intercession. He has become our great high priest. The writer to the Hebrews 
perhaps says it best, describing the ministry of intercession by our high priest Jesus. Will you let me read some verses to you? Will you commit to me? You'll listen. I won't require you to turn and read them for yourselves. Can't make you do that anyway. But listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, beginning in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. That has to do with his coronation. Through whom also he created the world. He created the world through his son. Now he has appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, the very thumbprint of God's nature is seen in Jesus. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He not only created it, he not only was the source of it, he was not only the instigator of it, he is the glue that holds it all together. What keeps the moon spinning around the earth rather than spinning off into space? What keeps the planets in revolution around the sun? Why is it that the further and further and further that man's technology allows him to look into the universe, do we see order and balance? Why does all of this work without colliding and destroying itself? Can you imagine if God just turned off gravity for one second, how all of us would just go flying out into space? Well, that'd be a sight to see, wouldn't it? Maybe that's what the hymn writer, well, it wasn't really a hymn. The gospel songwriter came up with, I'll fly away, oh glory. Maybe that's what he was thinking about. Jesus is not only the creator, the source of all created things. He's the glue that makes it stick together and work. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews chapter 1 continues, after making purification for sins. That took place at the humiliation of Jesus with his sacrifice and the beginning of the exaltation as he's raised from the dead. After this, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name, a name above all names, remember? He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He is Lord. He's become, according to Hebrews 4, our high priest. Listen to these words. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, not arrogance, 
but with boldness and confidence based on who he is and through his grace he has made us to be. With confidence let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then this verse in Hebrews 7. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. That means completely and at all times. As one evangelist said, he can save even from the guttermost to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he ever, he always lives to make intercession for us. Resurrection, ascension, a coronation, and now the high priest makes intercession. And you know what the first thing the father did? He gave the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that third person of the Trinity, to Jesus, and Jesus' first work was to send the Holy Spirit after he ascended. That, keep in mind, that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. That's what happened at the household of Cornelius. That's what happened when you got saved. The Spirit of God was sent to you to indwell you. Understand that he is our high priest. Now this is present reality. This is historical. This has all happened already. It's not yet to be. It already has happened and it stands fixed and true and eternal today. But there's more in this passage. And I'm going to start drawing this to a close, but I really need your attention, please. Those of us who know Christ, who have not only believed the gospel message, but received that message through repentance and faith, the faith that was given to us, not by something we generated from inside, but a gift of God given to us so that we can believe. We who have surrendered to his lordship, we understand the present reality of Christ's exaltation. And part of our sanctification and our Christian journey and our struggle is to day by day continue to surrender to that lordship. Isn't that true? And there are times that, that we take the authority for our lives and we try to live an autonomous life and make our own decisions and we make messes out of our lives. But the daily struggle is to continue to surrender to the Lordship of Christ as we do battle with the old sinful flesh that is still uh, a part of this earth suit where we live. But now listen, here's the closing point. What about those who reject Christ as Lord? What about those who are enemies of Christ? You may not think of yourself as an enemy of Christ, but if you've not surrendered your life to Christ, you are his enemy today. You are his enemy. What about those who scorn and deny the message of the gospel or at least their need of the message of the gospel? There is coming not what is a present reality, but there's coming this number two part about the exaltation of Christ, the future realization 
of Christ's exaltation. This world today is full of people who reject the idea of a, an exalted Christ, who reject the idea that Jesus was God in the flesh, that Jesus is necessary as the only way to heaven. There are people today that have not surrendered to Christ in this life as of yet. Verse 10 and 11 speak about them. Listen to what it says. So that at the name of Jesus, he's now talking about something future, every knee should bow or every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord, that name above every name, to the glory of God the Father. There may be someone in this service today that has never exercised faith in Christ. A faith that is demonstrated through repentance, a turning away of their old life. It may be that there are knees that have never bowed to the Lordship of Christ. Understand, you are going to someday, whether you like it or not. I don't mean that as to sound harsh or judgmental. It's just the truth. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. There's a key truth here, and we must know it and remember it. The Lordship of Christ will not be denied, and it will not be debated. It will only be demonstrated and declared. The Lordship of Christ when all is said and done, will not be denied. And it will not be debated any longer. There's coming a day that from the lips of every human being of all time, of all time, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, they will demonstrate and declare the Lordship of Christ. They will demonstrate it by bended knees. They will declare it with lips and tongue. The Lordship of Christ is total. It is absolute. And it will be universal. Every knee shall bow before Christ either by choice or by force. Now I have an idea on that day, yet future, the future realization, not something that's happened yet. This world is still full of Christ rejectors and God haters. But there will come a day of reckoning at the end of this world when all those people are going to bow and declare the Lordship of Christ. Now, I don't know if God is going to actually force them or make them. 
Personally, I think that once they see and realize they are going to fall on their knees and declare God, declare the Lordship of Christ, hoping that it's not too late. But it will be. But it will be. The holy angels in heaven will bow before Christ. The glorified spirits of the redeemed will bow before Christ. The Christ followers here on earth will bow before Christ. May I say to you, all of those already have and will continue to do so. But there's coming a day that the unbelieving sinners in the world will bow before Christ. And even the devil, the demons, and all the lost souls in hell will bow before Christ and declare him as Lord. Listen to these words by Pastor John MacArthur. Listen closely. We have made so much about grace, and rightfully so, but we have left it without a balance. We have made salvation so much an act of grace that we talk about it as receiving a gift. Quote, Jesus died for you. Receive the gift he offered. But there's more than that. It is more than a humiliated Christ who died for you and offers you a gift. It is a coronated Jesus who calls for you to bow the knee in submission. Both are essential. Both are essential. This is our faith. This is our faith. We have to go all the way through verse 11 in proclaiming Jesus Christ, not just a humiliated Christ, but an exalted Christ who is Lord. And I think that preaching half of that message has produced tragic results. People who believe that Jesus is just a humbled person who died to give them a free gift and they have no sense of the allegiance to his sovereign lordship. That causes me to quake in my boots. A so-called salvation that is just the receiving of a gift that does not stir the heart, does not reconfigure the inclinations of our hearts, that does not motivate us to bow the knee and confess with the lips that Jesus is the rightful owner of my life is a conversion that is to be suspect. Why is it so imperative that we preach, that we pray, 
that we persuade our family and friends to surrender their lives to the Lordship of Christ now, now, while they have a free choice by God's patient grace. Why? Because to acknowledge him now is to receive his grace. To wait to acknowledge him later is to suffer his judgment. Because now you may bow and confess. God calls you to himself. But then when that day comes, you must bow and confess. No choice about it. Now it can be done in joy, knowing that the, there's to be the free pardon of your sins and a home waiting for you in heaven. But if you wait till then, you will do it in terror, knowing that it will make no difference in your eternity. Today, you can confess him as Lord and Savior. But on that day, you can only confess him as Lord because the day of being your Savior was wasted away by days like right now if you say no to Christ. What an amazing passage of Scripture, this hymn of Christ. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Father, we thank you. For this great hymn of faith, words that have been read, memorized, prayed, and sung, and quoted as encouragement for thousands of years. Father, may, be, may they be fresh and new to us today. I pray for that person in this service that has never bowed heart and knees to you as Savior, nor confessed you with their lips, I pray that they would do so even before this day is over. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.